Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. This week, we are going to be doing 10 questions with someone in recovery. And I am in Las Vegas, which is a weird place to be doing a recovery podcast. Um, And I came here for the Mobilize Recovery, uh, I guess, event, because we're not calling it a conference. Um, And I had an opportunity to talk to some people from around the country. And one of those people is the gentleman I have with me today. His name is Jesse Heffernan. And Jesse, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Morning, David. Uh, thanks a lot for having me this morning uh, or putting that open kind of thing up on, on Facebook. Like, I want to do podcasts. And I think that's just, I mean, you're right. Like, you're not in Vegas that often. Maybe, maybe not. And and then much less have like this many people from across the country. And so it's a great space to, to capture all this energy and everything. So I'm grateful I, I was able to get on board. Um, so like I said, my name is Jesse. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Uh, both substance use and mental health recovery, and I think it's important for me to put both those in that sentence at the same time, as stigma pervades both of those things. Um, and so it's been a little over 18 years for me, and the you know what it's allowed me to do is just so many incredible things, um, things that I never thought even possible. Um, it was interesting. I went and did that art project yesterday that Glenn Simpson was doing up right. against the wall, and like you know his. So there was this art project. He was going to outline everybody. And the preface was he comes up. He's like, think about the messages you were told when you were like younger or in active substance use. And I'm like, oh, that's stirring up some stuff. I don't (laughs) like that. Um, And the word that popped up for me was disappointment. Right. Disappointment. That's like I just felt like that barrage of messages. And, of course, all the fun trauma stories were flaring up. And he's like, well, think about then, like, what's your word today in recovery? And I said, and the word that just popped up was worthy, right? Just worthy. And, good word. and it, and it kind of shook me a little bit because, you know, I, w- I want to like, you know, kind of get away from like, oh, worthy. Well, I'm not that. I'm not like, and all the other messages that want to build, like take that one down popped up right away. But then just to embrace it and knowing it felt really good. So, um, so today, my recovery allows me to be worthy of opportunities, of open-mindedness, of connection, of authenticity and vulnerability, which I think is really powerful. Yeah, I had a mentor, and whenever I was wanting to step off into the recovery space um, and start the nonprofit and get some things going, I, what kept me was that feeling of unworthiness. I remember talking to my mentor and being, why me? And he looked at me and he said, why not you? And I was like, what? You know, so to me, he, he kind of uh, conveyed that message of worthiness to me. He's like, look at everything you've been at, been through and where you're at today. Yeah. And look at what you've been able to do since you started and the people you've helped. He's like, why wouldn't you be the perfect person? Right. Yeah. You know, I think too often we look at the past and we gauge ourselves based on the past instead of looking at where we are right now. Well, and, and a lot of things that came up during this conference was – you know, there's, there's been folks kind of in this space for a while and then folks that are just brand new to this, like recovery advocacy national space. And there's a lot of the comparison going on, you know, and, and I, for better and for worse, there's social media aspects to it too. Right. I don't have as many friends, likes, engagement. I don't know as much as that person. They've been doing that forever. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we could definitely introduce maybe a little bit more into this space is I've always liked the concept of anonymity, not necessarily being a means of hiding, um, but it was always been an equalizer in a lot of ways, right? Like, you know, it kind of levels the playing field. And and again, a lot of the things that were talked about this last uh, couple of days were like the cool kids club and and this kind of like still like this hierarchy of of recovery advocacy and who owns the space and all that stuff. And so like, just, yeah, like shed some of that stuff and know that we're all, um, and you know, worthy and we all deserve respect and dignity. 
Yeah, to me, it's always nice to come to these two and hear people that are being to steal a John Schenholzer word, authentic, mm-hmm. you know, because um, he loves to talk about the authentic recovery community. But I think just authenticity is important because if it wasn't for people being open and honest, I would think I was the only person that lived with imposter syndrome whenever I came to things like these, right. you right. know, because you're sitting there listening to people with 30, 40 years and they don't just have 30, 40 years of abstinence. I mean, they have 30, 40 years of full on recovery where they've been actively working in their state and around the country to have an impact. And I think a lot of times we look at that and we don't feel worthy. And it's yeah. not even time always either. Like, uh, you know, there's folks in our space that just skyrocketed really Ryan. quickly. I think Ryan's a good one for Right, that. yeah, you know, like three, four years in and like posting a national convening. Right. You know, and, and, and so there's, I think it's realizing, and I think Omar touched on it yesterday during his servant leadership piece, and a number of folks said, it's like, you're all capable of that. And it's, you know, it's not about everyone having to be a Ryan Hampton or a John Schinholzer. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading lately. Like, you know, you find your gift as it as it's needed in the community, not as it's supposed to look on, right? You know, on social media. So, so I think there's some some real humility that comes with that too. Um, it's like, oh, like I'm not. It's not my job or my space to be all of this. Like. And to really come to terms with that. And I think there's a lot of conflict in that space of just like what is purpose, passion and meaning kind of a thing. And um, hopefully we can start directing. I mean, I love that we set up mentorship programs. I love that we're talking about mentors and that's where that stuff happens. Yeah, there's a a Japanese uh, word, Ikigai. Have you ever heard of it? I did a podcast on it. And basically um, what it does is it they had an island where they had people that were living exceptionally long lives, Mm -hmm. like above and beyond. And they went in to try to find out what the secret was. Was it diet? Was it climate? And what they found out was uh, they were discovering their why, right? Which Mm -hmm. is what does your community need? What are you good at? And what are you passionate about? Mm -hmm. And they had that, which was their why, but they were also getting paid for it. They found a way to turn it into their, Job. So Ikigai is that sweet spot with where what your community needs, what you're passionate about, what you're good at doing, and what you can get paid for all intersect. That's the Venn diagram you see floating around once in a while. Yep. Very cool. So, and I think that is important because what Ryan is doing right now, we need a Ryan. But we also need people doing that at the local level and at the state level. Yeah, yeah. So I do think it's really important for people not to compare themselves because I can always find somebody better or worse. Right. You know? or I think is better or worse. Yeah. yeah. But I, I found out a long time ago, I make a really crappy somebody else, but I can make a pretty decent me. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So yeah, I think that's a definitely important thing. So, so jumping into the 10 questions, the first one uh, that, that people came up with, and I thought logically it should always go first. Is why did you start using to begin with? Why did I start using <clears throat> substances to begin with? Um, you know, I, I think it it traces back even before actual substance use. Like I could remember. So, so I think there was a lot of trauma that I didn't know how to um, process, and and that happened very early in life. You know, I've been I've been I still do therapy and counseling. You know, 18 years in, just to unpack a lot of this stuff and see how it affects my life. And at that time, like my my dealing with that trauma was disassociation, right? I couldn't, I just didn't want to be in my own body. And but the emotion still had to go somewhere. And where that came out for me was, you know, very early on, stealing, mind manipulating. Um, doing all that stuff just to feel different, just to try to do something with the emotions. And then, um, you know, I would say I was introduced to like smoking cigarettes, probably the earliest, you know, 10, 11 years old. And I started that. And that was like probably my first one, you know, right. like this is great, you know, and I started stealing from my mom and all the kids. And so, you know, it was really it was it was more of just this coping mechanism. I think it was partially coping mechanism. The other part was. I really believe in like that idea of connectedness and um, yes, I find connection and recovery, but I also found connection as a kid with trauma, with all this stuff, with other kids that had it. So they were my right. community, right? And so we all bonded, we trauma bonded together, right? And, and substances happen to be a part of that, right? I don't, I don't really buy into like um, the gateway drug being pot. And I know there's been some memes and some stuff going on around about this, but uh 
I thought quite a while ago, like my gateways were um, other people, right? right. There's other people with trauma and then, and then they would introduce me to different substances. So I was constantly looking for all those things. And I remember during my assessment in treatment, they're like, what was your drug of choice? And I said, what do you have? More. You know, what's the, <laughs> yeah. What's the buffet line look like? Right. Um, you know, you could have handed me a, a, a handful of who knows what. And, and I was like, good. It's going to make me feel different. So. Um, I, I think, again, it was just something like the planets aligned. And I, I had a, a mentor once say to me, you know, folks that experience heavy amounts of trauma, they're going to go um, use substances, go catatonic or or die by suicide. And unfortunately, slash fortunately, using substances and living through it was maybe the best one right. of those three. Yeah, that's uh, something I can relate to, except... The marijuana kind of was the first one that I tried, but the next night I went out with the same group of kids and we drank and I found the same thing. But, but your story is very similar to my story is very similar to probably a lot of stories of people that are listening to this that actively use. I tell people I didn't have a drug problem. I used for 25 years. I died eight times over that 25 years, but I didn't have a drug problem. I had a drug solution. Um, unaddressed trauma was the problem. And the solution I found that would allow me to numb, escape, kind of what you're talking about, um, was substances. So I think an important piece of this, you know, it is getting the getting ACEs done earlier. You know, mm-hmm. addressing that trauma in kids. I I even read a uh, a uh, uh, they did a study on people who are now in like their 30s mm-hmm. who were diagnosed as youth with uh, ADHD, mm-hmm. and what they found out was. About 70% of the youth, well, about 70% of the adults when they were youth that were addressed with, that were uh, diagnosed with ADHD and put on Ritalin, Vivant, some of those other uh, medications actually had really high ACEs scores. Mm -hmm. But ADHD and trauma in youth present kind of the same. So we created that. I need you to send me that link. For the last four years, I've been going up and presenting and say they, they, they diagnosed me with ADHD, but I changed the acronym to Anxiety and Depression Halting Development, right? I like that. I couldn't sit in class and learn, right? I couldn't sit in a traditional class and like pay attention. And yeah, all my symptoms looked like, and they just, you know, I was a dartboard, right? And they're like, right. try this much, try this much, you know? And then I found substances. I'm like, oh, I can calm down, you know? Right. And, uh, but that's fascinating that there's actually research behind it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll look that up. <laughs> now I wish I would have saved it whenever I had it. Notes. So yeah. Google could probably help. It's probably actually looking it up on my phone and it'll show up on Facebook because it's all listening to us all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh. Siri laughs. Alexa laughs. Yeah. Yeah. I read something about that on Facebook the other day. Somebody it was like, my husband said, I, I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg is listening to us through Facebook. And my wife goes, really? Do you think that? And I'm like, yeah. And I laugh nervously. Then Alexa laughs nervously. Then Yeah. So what made you decide to stop? Was there like a catalyst? Was there a defining moment? Yeah. I don't, I think it's several things. And so like in the midst of, of, active for me active substance use there were also really amazing people that came along that really cared and and i didn't at the time possess the willingness or the ability to really let them in to any degree to even talk about getting help and so i would say it was more of like a lot of folks were planting seeds right and i had this life of shit i don't know is this pg-13 are we We can go pg-13 yeah i'll keep it disney-ish um (laughs) So, so I had all this shit in my life. Right. And, and like, you know, seeds, you know, come out great out of manure. Right. right? And so I, I kind of think of it that way, you know, like all these things were, were kind of being planted. People would care. I, I had all this stuff happening. I went to this really amazing school. Um, so I didn't really hack it very well in regular high school, went to an alternative school and they just, it it was the first time in my life where someone just said like, I'm going to meet you where you're at. Like, I know, I get it. Like, you just got so much pain, so much frustration. You're using all the time. We have some structure and boundaries, but we're going to really just kind of like love you where you're at. And that was amazing. Like that, I think, is where one of the first times I kind of cracked open. Um, And then, you know, there was like all the subsequent like, you know, uh, police contacts and, and not showing up for court and having warrants out and all that stuff. 
and and then going to treatment for the first time. And, you know, I think even when I first went into treatment and I started experiencing some fellowship meetings and just meeting people and like, oh, like this might be okay. It might be safe enough to open up here. And um, really it was the last week I was in jail. So I was in treatment. I went on a home pass with the wrong person to the wrong place, got high. And, uh, you know, and of course they found out, believe it or not, like, you know, they didn't buy the whole uh, contact high story. Which right. I'm like, come on, my story was flawless, you know? I'm like Sizer Kozak and I'm just like reading <laughs> the wall and it's melting at the same time. And, um, you know, then uh, I was in, in, this, in jail for a week and it was the worst week. So then like for whatever reason, everything cracked open, right? Like all the stuff in the, in the meetings and in treatment finally soaked in like, oh, like I get what, you know, cognitive intervention means now and red flag thoughts. I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and not only was it like this week of like all this stuff soaking in, it was also um, there was a horrible flu bug and it was like an open cell block kind of thing, you know, so you heard and smelled everything uh, going on. So right. I mean, it was like double awesome. <laughs> the PO comes up and, and, and I just put all my cards on the table and got honest. I said, I, I'm going, I had 35 years over my head. I said, I'm going like, whatever, right. you know, I, I can't play both sides of this fence anymore. I get what people are saying. It's st- it, so it wasn't like one defining moment. I think it was just like all these seeds then eventually the seeds broke through and then eventually like I, I got cracked open, you know, and call it the force, the planets aligning, HP, whatever it is that PO said, okay, I'm going to see what I can do. And then I had to sit another weekend and then he came back and said, you can go back to rehab, you know. So you were pretty young too when you stepped into recovery, weren't you? Yeah, I was 20. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, and in Wisconsin, turning 21 is like a rite of passage, you know. Um, I think it's that way most places. Yeah, and I had to give my my my. I was in a three quarter house. I had to give my roommate my ID for the week. Like I don't care if I get pulled over. Like I want to, I want to go try this out, you know. Um, but yeah, it was just all these things, and and I think again, like we were talking about, you know, like the comparison and the the stories, and like oh, I saw the light of God kind of a thing. Like you know, no, like your story is what's important, and looking at those defining moments for you and. Um, and, and just realizing, like, it's all these things. It's so multifaceted. It's it's so many dynamics that, that take place in someone's change. Um, to just chalk it up to one one kind of thing, I think, you know, just doesn't really work for me. Yeah, that's why I'm big uh, on the whole hashtag hope dealer thing. I mean, I've always been big on the hope dealer thing. And I don't call myself the hope dealer. I call myself a hope yeah. dealer. Because I believe anybody who's overcame something and then turns around and uses that uh, story to ignite um, the passion or that that hope in somebody else is a hope dealer, and it doesn't have to be substance use. It could be a cancer survivor. It could be somebody right. leaving a domestic violence situation. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, but it's funny. So often we hear, and it reminds me of a motivational speaker I heard once who said, "You show me your friends, I'll show you your future." Mm-hmm. Where there generally are some positive people in somebody's life, where even we might have shut them out at the time, but we come to a place, and I see this with therapy too, mm-hmm. where I don't listen to my therapist, I don't listen to my therapist, I don't listen to my therapist. I'm sitting in jail, and I'm like, holy crap, everything they said was going to happen is coming true right now. <laughs> this sucks. Are they fortune tellers? <laughs> How did they know? Yeah. Here, I thought I was an anomaly. And, <laughs> you know, that's one thing I want to get across in recovery too, and why I love having other people's stories on here is we're not unicorns. There's 23, and in fact, I heard number 25 million. Yeah. Um, at this conference, but I'm uh, not conference um, at the mobilized <laughs> recovery event. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's over 20 million, you know, 20, right. a quarter. It's a know, big number. 25 million people in long term recovery. So there's yes. a lot of us. There's more people in recovery than are actively using. That's the idea. Yeah. It's huge. And, and what I love, too, about that number is, um, you know, the folks over at uh, Recovery Research Institute. Um, they did a study and they found that 46% of that 25 million did not enter recovery via treatment, fellowships, 12 step, nothing. It was all like they woke up one day. Maybe they are unicorns. I don't know. Right. But they found a different pathway. And so as we emphasize multiple pathways, like I've got numerous stories of friends that just like I decided to go on running streaks, you know, and like that was my recovery. So I think it's, again, important to emphasize 
that almost half those people didn't do it the means right. that most people talk about. Yeah, and I think that is important. There are m multiple pathways to work, uh, multiple pathways to treatment. As much as people want to say something like treatment works or, you know, uh, the one that always gets me is it works if you work it. I'm like, what doesn't work if you work it, really? Right, right. You know, I have a, a bike that sits in my house, and as you can tell, I haven't been on it a lot. But it has the ability to work yeah. if I were to get on there yeah. and push on those pedals and generate. So right. but it's, it's one means, and I think that's the thing is, like, trying to pigeonhole people into, like, and I did it. You know, I was a 12-step evangelist. I was like up there, basic text and fire and brimstone and meaning right. makers make it. And by the grace of God, there go I. And, you know, someone had to die for me to be in this chair. And and those dogmatic fire and brimstone, like I see them now as like, those are like <coughs> BS excuses for poor systems. You know, I shouldn't have, just no one should have to die for me to have a chair. You know, like we should just have more chairs. Right, better systems to get them into those chairs. Yeah, I'll have to add it to notes. There's an interesting uh, grapevine mm -hmm. that it's uh, Bill W. from speaking at a convention in, I think it's Canada. Mm -hmm. But he goes off on his biggest fear about AA. And he talks about my biggest fear is that people will take it. Well, well, he said, anytime you have a group of people that come together. He said dogmatic beliefs occur. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear is that we become dogmatic and we reject things outside of the system that works right. for us. Right. You know? He was hanging out with the dude that created methadone, you know, right. saying like we might need that for alcoholics someday. <laughs> no, medicine's bad. A drug's a drug. Right. So let me smoke. Yeah. So let me hit my vape and drink caffeine. Let me tell you about my energy drink sponsorship. <laughs> I really do, though. I think like Monster or somebody like that, the choice of a sober generation, I think they should sponsor us, really. I mean, somebody should. Yeah. I uh, they One of my friends went to Ikipaw, okay. and uh, they, they had the National in San Antonio a few yeah. years back, and he brought back pictures of the cases of Red Bull just yeah. stacked six feet yeah. high everywhere throughout yeah. the, 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 the convention center. <laughs> we do like our energy. We're exclusive abstinence, that's all. <laughs> So what does recovery mean to you? Recovery, I love that question um, because it's, it's one, it, it has to be able to change. I think that's the first thing. My definition needs to be able to change. And, and there's probably like three defining moments. So one, of course, it was like in the beginning, it was like abstinence only. Recovery is 12-step. Recovery is doing these things, right? And then I, and then it was about five years in and I'm sitting on the back porch with my roommate and, and we're just talking and I'm like, there's gotta be more to life than this. I mean, we were involved with everything, every service project. We were doing state conventions, local conventions, all the meetings. We helped start up one of the first, um, recovery kind of community organizations in the, in, in the, in the area we lived in. And there's gotta be more. Right. What else is out there? Right. And that's when I got involved with AmeriCorps and did some service work with Boys and Girls Club. And so my, my definition changed and I found other people that were just as wounded and, and they were just living their lives. I'm like, oh, and so it would slowly crack open, right? <clears throat> and then I was at the CCAR, um, the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, uh, Recovery Coach Academy in June of 2014. And they introduced the concepts of moderation I knew about medication-based recovery, but moderation and medication-based recovery, and I'm like, screw you, right? Like, no, right. that's not happening. And what it was is was this extreme discomfort in in what I learned was like the my own insecurity in my recovery, right? It was like this. All of a sudden, it was being threatened. My challenge. My belief. Yeah, it was like, oh, like people do that. Could I be that person? And so then again, like it just kind of opened up this whole new world. And, and I was better for it afterwards, right? To be a good coach, to ask good questions and to own my stuff. And that's why, I, I mean, I, I love that model. And then as time progressed, you know, I really realized like there's so many folks that need this. There's so many folks that are experiencing pain in so many different levels. And so recovery has become the process of returning to inherent worth and dignity. And that's it. I like that. You know, it's, it's I, I don't subscribe to like, being an addict at my core or being a junkie at my core and I've abandoned a lot of like belief systems growing up in, in evangelical churches about like inherently being flawed and inherent original sin and saying, no, 
I believe at the source of all people is goodness, is connection to their HP or whatever, and it's life is about returning to that, you know. And I've done a lot of things to to work on that and to and to help other folks with that. So it's recovery is just returning to inherent worth and dignity. Because I I'm a social worker, um, by degree, mm-hmm. and there they have the concept of unconditional positive regard, and I've always loved that. Mm-hmm. Basically, what it means is everybody has value just because they exist. Yeah, you know, and so we should treat people like they have value yeah. just because they exist. Yeah, you know, and I think for some of us it gets really difficult though because. Uh, we start labeling ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. whether you want to look at a self-fulfilling prophecy or like Cooley's looking glass self. I also have a bachelor's in sociology and that's really the only two things I remember that's from, so much fun. from yeah. sociology yeah. Is, is those two concepts. But, you know, either we say something often enough and we become it, mm-hmm. which also kind of goes into uh, the secret. Yep. If you've ever seen that, yeah, you know, that. Yeah. so where they talk about the, the kind of the power of positivity, but there's also that power of negativity too. Yeah where I can create kind of my own prison. Yeah. Um, and then the other one says that if people say things about us frequently enough, eventually we come to adapt whatever that is. Yeah. yeah. So, or adopt, I guess, not adapt. Yeah. It's, it's like that. It, it, you know, external oppression can become internalized. But, and, and I think that happened a lot in life too. And, and I've seen it in others is like, I'm being berated with things. And like I said before, you know, like, you know, people. I thought people thought I was a disappointment, or they would express that. And then the moment happened where I believed it, right. and then it was just over. You know, yeah. then it was like, then it was the downward spiral. And so, coming out of all of that, you know, is has been the recovery process. You know, and then finding these new definitions for it. When you look in a mirror and you don't see uh, a disappointment in an addict. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's a human being worthy of love and relationship and and all these things and and then to be able to see other people like that and the trick is though i think like because then i said well now i got to go and treat everyone and help everyone but i have these conflicting feelings because i still think they suck sometimes um but realizing that's okay too i don't have to agree with everyone and and i've had some pretty both um public and not public disagreements with folks in this space and, and the thing that I always land on is like, no matter how much I disagree with them, if they called me up at two in the morning and said, I need help, what do I got to do? Right. You know, I'm there, you know, and that's what I love about this space, right? We bicker about all this crap, but at the end of the day, I'm going to go and help someone, you know? So speaking of help, what were the yeah. things that uh, got you into recovery to begin with? So it, it was, it was, you know, definitely like the, um, the introduction to, um, you know, fellowship meetings and, and looking at my thoughts and the ripple effects. So I went to a, it was a state run and an LSS Lutheran social services run treatment facility. Um, so I was in jail and I thought I was like this big bad drug dealer bringing drugs up to the jail and doing all this crap. And believe it or not, my PO found out and She's like, I want to send you to prison, but my, <laughs> my, hey, my supervisor wants to send you to treatment. So lucky you. Um, but just it being introduced to all those concepts and I was so freaked out by it. And I'm like, this recovery stuff's going to suck. No one's going to look like me. No one's going to understand me. I go into one of my first meetings and there's this dude with tats up and down, long hair, uh, big old goatee. Turns out to be a drummer in a metal band. He's got comic book tattoos. And I'm like this could work. <laughs> and he came, he became my sponsor after a while. And like, and so it was those kind of things, right? right? It was like connection with people. And it was like testing the waters and feeling that, that, that kind of thing. There was a house manager who, you know, introduced me to different forms of, of spirituality. You know, she would bring in like, um, like these native tarot cards and do all this stuff. Looking back at like this treatment facility, like, they probably shouldn't have been around. Like their people did some messed up there stuff. There was no evidence-based practice. Yeah, <laughs> well, there was, but the house managers were like really unethical sometimes. Okay. Yeah, but for our betterment, I guess. So, right. Yeah. And uh, I guess house managers kind. I mean, there's there's a gray line with that. Is, and they too. exercise that gray line. Um, <laughs> so so there was just these things that really helped 
you know, and, and it was people and it was connection. It was people like not giving up. I, I, I think, you know, um, relentless compassion and loving endlessly. Right. <clears throat> I was friend. Uh, there was this, uh, this person, Amy Bluell, who started project semicolon. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I did a lot of work with, with her and, and, and some of the board and, she had that that tattooed right here. It said love endlessly. And that was something that her father told her. And I'm just like looking back throughout life. I'm like, that's what people did. Like in school, there were those people. And in treatment, there were those people. And in life, there were those people. And and I think it really was like that connection and the network that supported me till I could do it myself. The other side of it is I was just really scared of what was going to happen. You know, like if so, my recovery in a lot of ways started out of fear, not out of gratitude. It was fear of consequences. It was fear of death. It was fear of all these things. And for a while that worked. You know, it drove me far enough right. for that to then start switching over to living uh, in a place of gratitude for recovery. So early on in that recovery space, as you stepped into it, were there any things that kind of uh, helped you maintain it? So, I mean, I, I just, you know, so I'm really susceptible to groupthink mentality and like cult-like stuff. And that's just the church I grew up in. So I got, so, 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 so the was, fellowship probably fit in really well. It was amazing, right? I was like, <laughs> tell me what to do. Um, what should I stay here? Yeah. Um, actually, it was, I had a family member go with me to a meeting once because they were kind of like testing the waters. He's like, you just quoted the book the whole time. Like, you didn't sound personal at all. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is how it works. Um, you're going to relapse and die. And, um, you know, I have a retort for that. Let me look it up in the big book. Yeah, right. Um, so so I had some of that. And, and you know, I, I think it just it, it, it took a little while, you know, it just took a little while. But it was good. Like, and all those things eventually, like, shed some of that stuff. And I was you know, found a, a better, healthier recovery space. And I'll just throw in a caveat here. I'd bag on a church, even though I, my faith, my, my recovery is faith-based. I also bag on 12 steps and some of the other modalities, but man, they save lives, you they know, do. and I think that's the bottom line. So I want to throw in that little caveat it is nothing we say here is personal uh, because it's amazing to hear the way people that go to meetings will talk about meetings at times. And it's, it's amazing yeah. to hear the way me, as somebody who goes to church, will talk about church at times. I, I love the faith side of it, but there's also parts of some of those people inside of that building and some of the beliefs and the way that they've twisted stuff that are kind of troublesome. And I think when group think occurs and we begin to think that our way is the only way, let's just say that's the furthest thing from a program of humility that we can possibly work. And it's generational. I mean, I had a guy tell me, he's like, you know, the first generation of 12 step was really like, you know, the 12 steps were done in a day and then you'd be at someone else's door doing it with them. And they also acknowledged like 12 step has a scope, right? And we acknowledge that you need therapy and counseling and that this is, this process isn't going to be lifelong. Right. Right. And it wasn't until really the second generation about 30, 40 years in that said, nope, you're depressed. You're not working the steps hard enough, right? You're this, you're not working them hard enough. And it, and it became that, like, really embedded. And it was, and, and NA was kind of spawned in that time period, too. And and, it, and it's just like, no, like, any, I get the need to grasp onto those things for, for certain degrees of time. And, it, and nothing can be done well holding on that tight, you right. know? So I think it's, it's moderation and it's learning more coping mechanisms and tools and stuff like that. And gratefully... You know, like a couple of years in, I went and explored like this adult children of alcoholics weekend. And I went and did uh, uh, this weekend called the Man Mankind Project, New Warrior Training Adventure. And I've explored and experienced things all over the place because my recovery needs to be holistic. Yeah. I always had, I didn't just use one substance. <laughs> so you, you were poly substance and poly recovery? Absolutely. There we go. You know, it's a, it's amazing like some of the tools that I've been able to pull from like smart recovery groups yeah. or, you know, I, I think that there's inherent good in just about everything out there. Yeah. You totally. know, unfortunately they're also full of people and people by their very nature can be kind of uh, janky at times. Yeah. And I was janky for a lot of years. You know, <laughs> I really was, I was like, you know, that person that, that just like, it's 12 step or nothing, you know? And, and the other thing, and I, and I, for me, this is kind of like a, a PSA, like, 
the idea that someone with a year in recovery is a qualifier for them to go and save someone else and do like a 12-step call, so dangerous. So da- I walked in on so many horrible situations where it should have been a professional walk. I should have been a first responder walking in that room, not some punk kids who got like this cape and tights mentality thinking like, oh, I got my book and my, this is my duty to do 12 step calls. No, like call a professional, call a crisis text line, county crisis line, get help. Don't show up yourself. Yeah. I think sometimes we, we, we talked about it actually mobilized recovery um, where I think sometimes we throw people in way too early and we don't equip them for what could come. Yeah. You know, and that's definitely a risk. And, I've also found out that abstinent time doesn't equal quality recovery. You know, right. I, I know people that have 20 years of abstinence that, and uh, I've had people tell me I'm not supposed to work other people's programs. And I, my retort to that is always, I used to make a hundred bucks an hour. People paid me to work their programs as a therapist. So, you know, um, but <laughs> so uh, I've seen people though, with six months that have a better recovery program than somebody, some of these people that have 10, 20 years. And it was brought up this week too. Like the recovery space is so desperate for faces that we will, we will trade in experience, emotional maturity, uh, mindfulness, all those components. We will exchange that for passion just to get someone out there. And and I, I experienced it in service level work too, right? Like warm body syndrome, Oh, you've got like a want and a need to do this. Boom, you're voted in, kind of a thing. And so we're just experiencing that at like this macro level, <coughs> and and we're not giving people the skill sets, or much less do they have always have the emotional maturity. I think that's what it comes right. down to for me is EQ, right? You know, great, 25 years in, but you know you're still doing all these things, and I'm not gonna like my gauge is like, would I let you watch my kids? <laughs> And if I say no, I'm like, eh, I'm probably going to love you from a distance then. Right. You know, maybe I'll work with you. Maybe I won't. But not a bad qualifier, actually. Right. I'm not going to let you get too close. Yeah. If I wouldn't let you watch my kid, why would I let you talk to these people whose lives are hanging by a thread? Exactly. Because you could be the catalyst that pushes them over. Yeah. Who knows? But then you're going to then you're going to rub it away and be like, well, you know, if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else that would have done that. So. I think we give ourselves excuses and outs sometimes that we probably shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know it, it, on one hand, like, yeah, like loving people, connecting them with their aunt, helping them find their purpose and passion. And one of the things like, you know, ha- like looking at the treatment community, right? Like a lot of times, and I'm not saying this is that broad of a, of a sweeping statement that all treatments do this, but a lot of them are set up on a system where like you experience a 28, 30 day, sometimes 90 day acute care system that's not followed up with a regiment. Or like I would talk to a lot of parents and they're like, I sent my kid to Colorado and they were doing yoga in the sunset or whatever. They get back to deep, dark, bleak, Nina, Wisconsin. They know nobody, right? Like what happened? I'm like, well, I'll tell you what happened. There was no connection made, right? So, and above that, there was no, like we, we think that again, quality or time is like, well, you're not ready for certain concepts yet. And true, like, you know, in a, in a neurological sense, like maybe not, right. but we could still introduce concepts of emotional maturity and health. Well, you talked about planting seeds. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can still plant those seeds. And I think that uh, you, you bring up an interesting point there too. Like, uh, and part of the problem I think is a lot of people don't have the money for it. But I have a friend, and he had sent his daughter. First, his daughter went to Hazelden, and then his daughter ended up going to uh, BRC, Mm -hmm. which is in Austin. And he turned around and paid for her to stay there. He's like, I don't want her. And it kind of reminded me of the Don Coyas, uh, the healing forest. When you have a sick forest, why would you get a kid healthy and then replant them right back in the same corrupted soil in the sick forest they came out of? Right. So, but a lot of people don't have that, that financial option, but for him, I mean, his option was to keep her there in Austin Mm -hmm. because she'd already bonded with those people and connected. And now she works for BRC and, you know, she has this amazing life now. But in in a lot of our communities, I mean, we have, I mean, Tim Rabel was talking about, you know, from, from AHRE, like the hundreds of recovery colleges that are organizations that have that, 
the hundred some recovery community organizations. I mean, that was one of the things that I was always dreaming of was like our treatments need to be moving people into recovery community organization space. Like that needs to be like the pathway. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I saw Don and Bill White speak uh, a couple of years ago at the uh, multiple pathways conference. Right. And Bill said, you know, if you subvert 50% of all the block grant money that went into treatment into recovery support services, treatments would lose 60% of their clientele because they run off of recidivism and relapse, right? So if we were moving people into recovery spaces because they exist, right? Like they could come back to Nina and still experience a full rich recovery and not have to go back with their friends if the treatments did their job connecting people in those spaces. Well, and I think that's why like the RC recovery community centers, recovery community organizations, and uh, also, and, and I'll throw out a plug for NAR because it's something, yes, you know, but at the national association for recovery residents is when we actually have certified recovery residences yes. for people to go into. Now all of a sudden we're starting to make our communities healthier. Yes. And now we have a robust place that people can come back to. Right. That's, that's you know. got some standards to it. Right. Like, I think those systems, like the, the college and the high schools, the RCOs, the NAR houses, like those are the most underutilized systems in this whole thing. Yeah. Right. You know, like, and, and I will hold on to that forever and be like, if we were to just fund those, if we had an RCO in every single county, you know, and it pays for itself, you know, in Wisconsin, a person to stay like, you know, in the midst of active substance use and incarcerate is about 40 grand a year. You know, I can do with 40 grand a year, you know, how many houses you could open up for 40 grand a year, you know, but again, like, and and now I'm going to stop before I go on my tirade about that. I'll give you a minute to put the soapbox in your back pocket. Uh, It's out. out You're like, I'm done. So, but yeah, I agree with that. I, it bothers me. Like we're trying something in our state right now because our block grant, 80% goes to treatment, 20% goes to uh, prevention. Yeah. Nothing for recovery. Right. And that's There's the nothing whole earmarked. point of re- of treatment is to get people into long-term recovery support services. And in Wisconsin in 2015, we had a 30% treatment completion rate, right? Like th- any other healthcare system and they'd be completely revamping the entire thing. So the surgery, um, 70% of you are going to die. Yes. Boom. Right. Like all these things. Right. And, and that's the thing about like this whole, like giving substance use recovery, like the medical lens that, that it so rightly deserves is that we do it. And, and a lot of community leaders and politicians would be like, it's a disease, a disease, a disease. And like it was brought up this last couple of days and yet we're going to pump 50 million into new prisons and yet we're going to we're going to pump all this money into punitive systems that don't actually treat it like that right know? yeah wow See, we're so boxes out. not getting through a lot of questions that's all right I, I talk <laughs> and i think that's a great on these so <laughs> okay speed round speed round right. uh what were the thing uh in early recovery what helped you maintain your sobriety the most um so like i said i, I really I really took on the uh, ideas and the, and the concepts of what was uh, suggested. And so like I went, I was in treatment in one city, went back into another place and, and back in my hometown. And I did like 110 meetings in 90 days. I was like, I need to be around, like you said, like I need to be in a new environment. I was scared of who I'd run into. And then I, so I did that. I got involved with the community. They said, show up early, stay late. You know, my service work became important and then it became like involved with group service. And so I just found all these places like, you know, that that I just clung on to. And then I found people that I could do cool things with and go disc golfing and and hang out and talk about music and anime and all this stuff. Right. I just found my community, my connection. Right. And that's what helped me. Absolutely. And that's awesome. See, I answered them quick now. I know. So I is, there one, away. is there one thing you do every day? Um, that helps you maintain your recovery. Do you have a ritual? I have a, I have an inconsistent ritual. Um, one thing I do every day, you know, I try to just. Besides caffeine. I mean, that's part of it though, right? I think, you know, skills are transferable and, and, and ritual is part of that. Um, so I love making really good coffee, and I've been I worked at a coffee shop for a number of years. Oh, but I mean, you make good coffee. Yeah, I mean, like they put us through the whole thing as to how to do that. 
it's like a breaking bad. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, one thing, I, it's just finding the time. So even like in the last couple of days, like the madness of getting mobilized recovery together um, for the last six or seven months. And, and so I used to do um, activities chair work for our local NA group, right? And one of my favorite things is always just stepping back and just looking at the crowd and just being like, this is amazing, right? And I think it's just finding those little pockets of time throughout the day. And it, it doesn't have to be time. It doesn't have to be perfect. But to just stop and recognize and breathe it all in and, and just feel the gratitude of all of it. And, and then just like, you know, this is incredible that I get to be right. here, right? I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Now, like more on a consistent schedule, I have like, again, regular therapy I still go to. Um, I still go to, a, you know, a regular meeting. Um, I have a men's group that I go to on a regular basis. And so it's, for me, integrity and authenticity and um, just making sure I stay unpacked on the inside. Right. You know, I, I always believe recovery is like I work on myself on the inside so I can do more stuff on the outside. Right. And and that's just still, um, you know, imperative for me today. Okay. Yeah. For me, it's coffee. Coffee and a gratitude list. <laughs> that's how I start off most mornings. Love it. So, so I was joking when I said the coffee thing, but yeah. completely serious at the same time. So what is it that keeps you from uh, returning to those old behaviors? Like, like I'm at a point right now where I literally will tell somebody, I, unless it's something like my car accident where I died, then came out of, came out of a coma on a morphine drip. Yeah. Um, I will never intentionally put a substance in my body. Yeah. You know. You know, so it's it's been it's changed a lot over the years. Why that is? Again, it was out of fear for a while, and then it was like, well, I would not want my life any other way. And, you know, this big thing now with, like I said, you know, folks with moderation-based recovery. And I've had people ask me, like, do you, you think after, like, 18 years you could use successfully? And, like, possibly, you know. And, and then for a while I'd say, but I don't want to play Russian roulette like that, you know. Right. But I was also engaged. At, uh, you know, I did a lot of work. Um, and I, I was on this. Uh, I, I did a lot of Zen practitioner work, you know. And I became, I got lay ordained. And, and part of the vows in, in that group is to like, you know, for me, it was abstaining from substances, you know, um, the, the not using mind or mood altering substances. And so now it's just more like, no, this is what I choose. Right. I, I want to maintain this for the rest of my life. Right. And it's more of a, a discipline. And, and, I, and I love reading about the early um, straight edge punk movement that came out of Southern California, too. And I've been I've been looking at more of that stuff. And I'm like, no, it's just a no excess tattooed on your hand. Now, yeah, well, you got to be careful with that because, like, then people, like, sometimes lump in, like, straight edge with, Because there was a violence move, like, they kind of... Yeah, there's, yeah. like, all in, like, I'm just going to watch from out here. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, I did like that commitment, though. Yeah. So committed to not using that you literally have X's tattooed on the back of your hand. They're nuts, yeah. Yeah. And the music sometimes pretty yeah. Uh, the problem that was mosh pits just have became an excuse oh, for people man. to punch and kick each they other. Did. It's not like yeah. it used to be. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Speaking, speaking as an old man, back in my day. <laughs> and so Noah Levine is actually where I learned a lot about that. Okay. He wrote um, Dharma Punks and Against the Stream because he was involved with that whole scene. And it was actually some of that stuff that, that kind of got him on his pathway of recovery as well. Very cool. So, so they talk about the gifts of recovery. And uh, what are some of those things, some of those gifts, some of those amazing oh, things that have uh, changed or been added to your life? There's so many, like, you know, one just, again, I, I get to be in these, I, I get to have my life. Like I, like I never, like, I never looked past more than a year in my life at any given time. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. I never really had that kind of foresight with it. Um, to, so to be here, I feel, um, just incredibly like grateful and lucky. And I know that there's like a large portion of privilege mixed in with that. Um, so like I get to see and experience all these things. And then the other gifts that come with it are like finding out more of who I am, finding out more of what, what makes me work and my why and my passion and connection with kind of like the universe around me, you know? And as a result of those things, I get to be a husband. I get to be a partner. I get to be uh, a business partner. Um, my wife and I work together in Helios Recovery, and I get to be a dad, you know. And so that's one of the bigger things, too, is breaking that cycle. You right. know, because generationally, there's just been abuse and abandonment of, of those kind of things. Um, 
so I get to show up for my kid's life, you know, and then and granted, I'm like, oh, what's going to happen with them? But, you know, that's right. like the college slash rehab fund, right? Like you get to pick <laughs> when you're 18. Um, but but for now, like some of the gifts are, you know, just those things, like those everyday things. You know, I as much as I complain about it, I get to cut the lawn. I get to hire people to work on our house. <laughs> um, those kind of things. Right. And I. And I get to feel today, right? I get to just feel and I get to observe and acknowledge the things that are going on around me. Yeah, I think changing one word in our vocabulary can have a huge difference. Yeah. And that's changing the word have to, to yeah. get to. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I don't have to get up every morning. I get to get up every morning. I, I don't to. have to spend time with my kids. Yeah. I get to yeah. be present. Yeah. You know, so I, I think a lot of times that, those things, I don't know. I've got a dad that talks about it, and he talks about his daughter now that she's in recovery. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, he said, it's like she lives in a different um, dimension. Yeah. He said, and the more that I'm around people in recovery, he said, they all live in that dimension. He said, she's grateful for everything. Yeah. He's like, that's what everybody's looking for. Right. He said, how would you feel if, you know, she – they ask, they're like, hey, somebody's sick. They called in. Uh, we need somebody to come in. She's grateful to pick that up and come in and work. She doesn't feel she has to. She does it because she wants to and because she's grateful for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, I, I feel I, I almost feel sorry for people <clears throat> um, that haven't been through some of the things I've been through. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never wish it on somebody. But at the same time, I know what life was like without recovery. Mm-hmm. And I know what my life is like now. And I think it does give you a gratitude. You know, when you walk through hell, I think you appreciate heaven a little more, you know. So I would never wish trauma on somebody, but overcoming and standing on the other side of that trauma complete and whole. Right. And, and I think, again, like it, it's not like, you know, and I've been really trying like with that kind of a thing, like, you know, everyone has their own experiences and they get to walk through whatever that is. Um and, and they get to, they get to find whatever that passion lies on the other side, you know, and I think sometimes folks are so, you know, like kind of blinded by a lot of consumerism and commercialism and all this stuff, right? Like, you know, I, I think anyone could qualify to get to that other side, right? Like, well, I, everybody's in recovery from something. Right. I mean, I think of the folks that like, like mob rush stores on Black Friday and like they get into fistfights like a straight edge mosh pit. And, and I'm like... What could you be working on in life? You know, right. like what's driven you to that point? You know, to stand in line for three hours waiting for a door to open so that you can fight over the last item. Yeah, yeah. So there's some maybe addiction to consumerism or something, right? Like that. Process addiction, right? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's probably an area we need to look at more too. Is, yeah. Especially now that we have some of the research coming out on cell phones, tablets, stuff like that. Yeah. Definitely. As I look at my tablet, and if you could travel back in time and talk to yourself the day before you used, oh, man. what would you say to yourself? Like, I, And I think for you, you said it was about cigarettes. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say anything. It was fun. So this reminds me um, when, the, when, the, when the Columbine shootings first happened, right? And, and people always want a scapegoat. And of course, at the time they found Marilyn Manson. Like, oh, it's your music. I that loved what he said. And he said, I wouldn't say anything. I'd listen to those kids. And that's the same thing. And what I actually try to practice with my kids now is like, as much as I can, like, I know I act out of these different places with them, but when they're hurting, you know, it's just like, you, you kneel down, you sit down, like, like, what do you need? Like, and just hold space and just give them a hug. Like, I think that's the biggest thing is like, I could just go back and give that kid a hug. Right. Just be like, it's going to be all right. You know, it's going to be all right. And then, like, back to the future, I'd give them all, like, invest in Apple. Invest in Google. <laughs> Don't, what's Google? Don't ask. Just invest in Google. <laughs> you know, uh, that's funny that you bring that up because they it's like they picked the guy. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm not a huge Michael Moore fan, but I right. think – in that documentary, I think it was amazing. Yeah. And he picked the one person that everybody was like, oh, this is going to be a, a crap show. Yeah. And he was probably the most eloquent, well-spoken person in profound. that entire yeah. documentary. Right. That, that had the most profound thing to say. Yeah. And you that's know. what it is. Like, I mean, like we, we look for all these like complex evidence-based answers. Like, no, just listen, 
Like, I, I love that there's an alternative word for recovery coaching, and that's being a compassionate witness. I love that. Like, right. if, what happens if you just, you know, without expectation, hold space for someone and, and meet them where they're at without your own stuff coming up in the midst of all of it? That can save a lot of lives, but it requires right. time and training and patience to do that and a really high level of emotional maturity to do that, right? To connect with right. people on that level. So, so <clears throat> as we get ready to wrap this up, uh, it's been kind of neat. I think the first time I met you was at a uh, an RCO boot camp in, in Chicago. Chicago, yep. Yeah. You know, so you've kind of been at the forefront of some of the national movement um, whenever it comes to the recovery space. I mean, we have people, I think, that like when I think of like Schenholzer and I think of uh, oh, uh, Phil Valentine, mm-hmm. you know, and some of those people, I think I think of them more as big state movement, even though they've kind of stepped into the national movement lately. So you've yeah. kind of been on that ground floor and you have uh, a business that you started with your wife mm-hmm. called Helios. You want yeah. to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, like, in, and so like I got to work for uh, a, a goodwill and, and, and this is like, so I didn't go to college, right? Like I went from like recovery space to AmeriCorps. So I served a year AmeriCorps okay. and doing runaway outreach and that helped pay off some student debt. And and part of that program was, was working offsite at Harmony Cafe to oversee and run LGBT youth leadership groups. Right. And then that led to all these opportunities through goodwill and that's where I learned like grassroots community organizing and like running those kind of things and all that stuff. So my schooling was non-traditional, right? Okay. It was getting into all this space. And then eventually that led to recovery space. And uh, when Harmony closed, yeah, we, we, we started Helios Recovery off the idea of doing consulting, um, training, recovery coaches primarily, um, and just started doing some of that contract work. It didn't work out that well the first time around. And I became the uh, the director of one of, we have three peer-run mental health respite facilities in Wisconsin. So I oversaw okay. the Iris place. And and I was there and a friend of mine, uh, Caroline, um, she was really involved with RCO space across the country. And so I was just kind of a local kid, right? Like I just right. done stuff kind of like in Wisconsin a little bit um, with like Great Lakes ATTC, but not a whole lot. All of a sudden, she's like, hey, there's this job at Faces and Voices. Are you interested? And without even meeting them, like it was like a two-week process. And all of a sudden, I'm in this national limelight hanging with all the people that were an anonymous people. And I'm like, oh, crap, you know? Um, So, and I got to see that. And I got to, I think, if anything, the gift for me out of that time was like, I love, love, loved learning about all the things going on across the country, Right. And again, it was just like, like I said, you know, holding people with space. It was holding organizations with space. And right. we're like, well, what do you need? You know? And and so being able to see that for a while was just an incredible gift um, and working with folks across the country. And then, yeah, you know, some, some stuff went down. There was some uh, differences of opinions and values and stuff like that and went back into Helios Recovery. And, um, you know, this Mobilized Recovery event that happened was really like the the the, uh, another being brought into national kind of work again with right. Ryan and Voices Project. But yeah, there's just some incredible stuff. And I love this space. Like I love what happened at Mobilize. I love that Pat Taylor and Carol McDade said, this is the St. Paul 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, that, that gives you chills. Yeah. Like, like St. Paul was where all this was birthed, you know, and for them to say, right. this is the next in you know kind of like incarnation. Uh, incarnation of that was just so cool so uh to be a small part of that has been incredible and so our helios recovery again like i'm doing like a recovery coach training um in illinois i'm doing a lot of work they've got rosk councils in illinois that i'm coaching um doing some stuff you know here and there and then my my wife and and, and co-partner and all this she's doing a lot around like welfare reform okay. you know so just learn like our 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 child protective services and our foster care systems are are a train wreck right and they're separating kids and there's this all this horrible stuff so she's really on the ground floor like helping influence uh, and, and create some legislative change okay well i want to thank you for your time <laughs> this uh, it ended up being about a 30 minute hour long podcast so yes those are my favorite <clears throat> Absolutely. I love whenever it's more conversational than it is. Hey, let's just answer some questions. 
So uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you at the next national event I get to go to because it seems like you're at most of the ones that I get the uh, opportunity and privilege to attend. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's the Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. What's up, all? Aaron, but not that Aaron, here to tell you about Sif Pop Writer's Room. For the past several years, there have been a growing amount of writers for SifPop.com, providing best ever challenges, movie reviews, themes, legacies, connections, and so much more. Sif Pop Writer's Room is where that all comes together, giving a voice to those words that you read. And on the show, every week is excellent, getting to chat such a wide variety of movies with a wide variety of movie lovers, and I'm really having a lot of fun with the show, and I just think that you would too. So check out Sif Pop Writer's Room wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll see you over there. Just remember to knock first.